0: For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's verse 20 of Matthew 5, the great Sermon on the Mount, which we are studying in a Sunday night series. And following that statement in verse 20, Jesus gives six illustrations to demonstrate how it is, and in what areas our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees of his day, if indeed we are to ultimately inherit the eternal kingdom, but if we are to be a part of the kingdom as it is here on earth before it is delivered to the Father in heaven. And so he begins in verse 21 with a series of illustrations, most of which begin with these words, You have heard that it was said to those of old. And the first we studied was, You shall not murder. And then Jesus corrects the misapprehension of the scribes and Pharisees and the misapplication that they had made of that Old Testament statute and gets behind the act itself to the attitude behind it. He does so throughout this chapter, concluding with the pinnacle, if you will, of his teaching on this particular subject, that is, the subject of contrasting the prevalent view of the Pharisees and scribes with the proper view that we should have as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's seen in verses 43 through 48. Let's read them together. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust." For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. As we go back to verse 43 in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, He deals with the application or the misapplication, as the case is, that the Jews of his day had made of the admonition to love your neighbor. There's no question about the fact that the Old Testament enjoined love of one's neighbor upon God's people. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 19, In verse 18, you see very clearly, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You remember what Jesus said in uh, this same gospel according to Matthew as he lived and walked among men and and taught in Matthew 22, verse 37 beginning, after uh, the question was asked, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So there's no question about the fact that the law taught that one was to love his neighbor. So when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, certainly they had heard correctly. But he adds some very important words here as to what they had heard and as to what they were practicing. They were practicing love for neighbor, and they defined neighbor as a fellow Jew and confined that definition to the fellow Jew, and they added, and hate your enemy. I challenge you to find anywhere in the Old Testament where under the law or anywhere in the Old Testament the Bible enjoined hatred of one's enemy upon God's people at any time. There is never a statement in Scripture that commands one to hate one's enemy. Yes, love your neighbor, but you will not find hate your enemy. How did the Jews justify the hatred of their enemies. Perhaps they justified it based upon the the judicial wrath of God, if you will, that was leveled against the pagan nations. In Canaan, for example, when God's people were told to drive them out completely, when God's people were told to completely destroy the Amalekites, and yet Saul, you remember the first king of the United Kingdom, failed to do what God had commanded. Was that something that commended and condoned hatred, personal, individual hatred of one's enemy? No. That was a judicial sentence that God was was executing upon pagan nations whose iniquity was full. In fact, of the Amalekites, he said, their iniquity is full. That was God's judicial sentence upon them. That was not, therefore, justification for the Jews to interpret that as being a license to hate one's enemy individually and personally and to apply it in that sense. Some of the imprecatory Psalms perhaps had encouraged the Jews to misapply what the law taught. For example, the psalmist attributed to David here, the 69th psalm at verses 23 through 25, says this Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually pour out your indignation upon them and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents. That is one of the imprecatory Psalms where David is calling for God to execute judgment upon his enemies, those nations that had turned against God and would turn God's people against God if they were given opportunity and did so, tragically, on more than one occasion. But again, That is not justification for one to personally hate one's enemy. And so when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, the hate your enemy is not there. The justification for that is not there. And so there needed to be some further correction. And in making that correction, Jesus issues what may be the most difficult command for any of us and all of us as followers of God and Christ to implement in our lives. Because the command is, not not only do you not hate your enemy, but from the positive standpoint, you are to love your enemy. That's a challenge. That is a very challenging thing to accomplish because the propensity that many have in today's world is to love those who love them and to reciprocate that kind of good feeling, the kind of love that is given to them. And so if I love you, I expect for you to love me back. And if I love you and you don't love me back, then I'm through with you. That's the prevalent attitude. In other words, I can just write you off. I have no other obligation or responsibility to you. If you do not respond in kind to my kind outreach to love you, then I have no further obligation. I have every right to write you off or to uh, treat you badly. That's seemingly the world's view. And... That was the view that the Jews of Jesus' day had, for the most part, adapted themselves based on their misapplication, obviously, of, of Scripture or their complete ignorance of it or their uh, simply disregarding it completely and failing to take the time to understand it. But they had limited the definition of neighbor to their fellow Jew. And furthermore, they had said, you have every right... If one does not return your love, then you have no obligation to love him. Jesus changes that misapprehension. And in verse 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, the word love there is not a love that indicates a strong emotional feeling. It's a moral obligation. It's not an emotional obligation necessarily, but a moral obligation, a moral duty. The duty to do for the one who is the object of our love, and that's every man, friend or enemy, to do for that individual what is truly best for that individual, and to desire for that individual what is truly best for that individual. The word is the the word agape, the, the highest form of love. He does not say, like all your enemies. He says, love your enemies. And so I'm not under obligation to to like what someone does to me and to appreciate someone who uh, is not kind to me from the standpoint of feeling good about that. But I must not return in kind the kind of harsh treatment or harsh words that that person gives to me. No, in fact, I'm to render just the opposite. And he tells us how that is manifested. How do I love my enemies? How do I carry out the command to love my enemies? Well, what about those who curse me? I'm not to curse them in return. I'm also not to simply say, okay, I'm walking on, I'm through, and I'll have nothing to do with you. No, I am to bless them, in other words, harsh words that are given to me, I have an obligation not to return them in kind, but to do everything I can to change those harsh words to words that will indeed be the kind of words that God would have one speak to me. In other words, I'm to do all that I can to let others, even my enemies, see the love of God in me in the hope that that will have an impact an impact that will cause that individual to say, wait a minute, there's something special about this person. I expected to receive what I had dished out, and yet I got something very different in return. What's wrong here? Or what's right here, really? And what's different and what's special about this individual? Well, what is special and what is different is that we are Christians. Therefore, we do not return in kind, cursing for cursing, but rather blessing. What about those who hate you? Do good. Here's another manifestation of how we love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. In other words, our love is to take, is to take the form of action, not just kind words in return for harsh words, but actually doing good for those who hate us. Did we find any illustrations of what Jesus is teaching here in the New Testament? Doing good for those who hate us. What about in Luke chapter 10? What about the beautiful parable of the Good Samaritan? And that parable was given in response to the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered it in parable form in such a way as to forevermore end the misapprehension among the Jews that their neighbor was a fellow Jew but that their neighbor was all mankind and anyone in need. And yes, even if that one who is in need happens to be one who is hostile toward me. Because as you recall the parable, the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side as this fellow Jew, as the indication, had been beaten and robbed and and left to die on the road to Jericho. And yet when the Samaritan, a natural enemy of the Jew, and the Jew being a natural enemy of the Samaritan, they had nothing to do with each other, they hated each other. When that Samaritan came along and found that man, we know what he did. And there's a beautiful lesson, obviously, to be learned from what he did for that individual. And so we see an example of it. We go back to the Old Testament and we see another example in Joseph, don't we? Of one who returned good for evil. Oh, what an opportunity Joseph ultimately had as his brothers stood before him as he had risen to a position of second only in power to Pharaoh himself and they stood before him at his mercy having initially thought to kill him and ultimately sold him into slavery and now it was his turn. And what did he do? He told them, don't you be angry with yourselves and don't you grieve about what you have done. This is all worked out in the providence of God for the benefit of all. And he did good to them rather than taking vengeance upon them. And so from Old Testament to New, We have beautiful illustrations, beautiful demonstrations of the carrying out of the teaching of our Lord here when he says, do good to those who hate you. And then he adds this, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. We should pray for them. Pray that they'll have a change of heart. Pray that their actions toward us will, will change. It's hard to be hostile and to hate someone when you're on your knees praying for that individual. That's a pretty difficult thing to do, isn't it? And again, what kind of demonstration in Scripture do we see of the carrying out of this command? What about Stephen? As the last, as the last bit of life ebbed from his body, and as he was about to breathe his last, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And what about Luke twenty-three thirty-four? One of the beautiful sayings on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus demonstrated what he taught. Stephen demonstrated it. And we, as followers of Christ, must demonstrate it as well. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And then he gives the reasons why we should do it. There are three reasons then that are given in these last verses we're looking at tonight as to why we should manifest our love even for our enemies in the ways that he has just told us to manifest them. Bless those who curse. Do good to those who hate. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Why should we do that? Well, what about this one? If we had no other, this ought to truly sober our thinking and cause us to seek with all of our heart to apply what the Lord is teaching us here about loving our enemies. Because he says that, this is verse 45, do all of these things, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that... In order that, here's the first reason for doing it, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. What's the implication there? If I'm to love my enemies and manifest that love by blessing the woes who curse me, by doing good to those who hate me, and by praying for those who spitefully use me, and I fail to do that, then I... I'm not a son of the Father in heaven. If I have to do that in order to be a son of the Father in heaven, then when I don't do that, then the implication is I cannot be a son of my Father in heaven. And as challenging as this text is for us to love our enemies in this way, it's absolutely essential that we learn to do that. Because I know we all want to be called sons of the Father in heaven. And yet Jesus says... You can't be called the son of your father in heaven unless you emulate the father in heaven by loving your enemies as he loved his enemies. And who are the enemies that God loved? You and me. We were the enemies that God loved. And God didn't love us because we were so lovable. God didn't love us because we had so much to merit His love, we had nothing to merit His love. Christ died for us while we were still sinners, Paul writes in the Roman Epistle. And so this text is telling us that we're to manifest the kind of love that God did for His enemies, and we were His enemies. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son for the world, those who were out in the world, those who had not deserved or merited His love. That's all of us. That's all of us. And if God loved us that way, then God says to us, if you're to be my sons and daughters, then you must love as I have loved. And so that's the first reason he gives for carrying out this, yes, admittedly difficult command, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. And he adds, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God sends a certain number of blessings upon all mankind, even those who hate him, even those who hate him. Janice passed along to me, forwarded to me, a response from one of our p- people in the community who gets house to house, heart to heart. And uh, he said, don't you send me this again. Uh, to paraphrase, he said, I do not believe in God and I will never believe in God, and if you don't stop sending me this, I will either get legal authorities to uh, to handle this, or words to that effect, or I'll start sending you atheistic material every day of the week. You will receive atheistic material from me. How would you like it if I sent you atheistic material every day of the week? Then you stop sending me this. Does God love him? Yes. Does God approve of his actions? Of course not. But God loves him even though he hates God. And that's what we're talking about here. God says, if you're going to be my children, you've got to love that man as I love him. And loving that man as God loves him means we do anything and everything we can, not to antagonize him, but to hopefully, ultimately, win him. And so, we simply explain to him, that's generated by electronic mail, there's nothing we can do about it, you know, please just discard it, if that's what you must do in effect, but just discard it, but it will keep coming as long as we're using house to house, heart to heart at least. But it simply illustrates the kind of hatred that can be shown to God and yet God does not hate in return. And what we need to see that is so vitally important here is that God says, you can't be any different. And that's what verse 48 is about to show us as it brings to a conclusion and to a head this portion of this great sermon. Now here's the second reason for loving your enemies. Not only that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, but, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, What reward have you? That's the second reason for loving your enemies. Because if you don't, you're no different than anyone out here in the world, really, in that respect. Because generally in the world, the world loves those who love them. We said that earlier. And by the same token, when someone out here in the world turns his back on someone else in the world, that one also then reciprocates by turning his back on him. But it doesn't work that way in the kingdom of God. And if it does work that way in the kingdom of God, then we're no different than those in the kingdom of Satan in that respect. That's what Jesus says here. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? And you know, that makes me stop and think that Many times, tragically, in the Lord's church, there are those who are not even doing that. They're not even greeting their brethren only. Sometimes brethren will get upset with brethren won't speak or talk to each other. Jesus kind of takes that for granted that surely we love each other <laughs> and surely we manifest that love for each other in our actions and in our speech. But you've got to take that a step further and love those who are not your brethren and manifest that love but if you greet your brethren only what do you do more than others do not even the tax collectors do so and now here's the third here's the third reason for manifesting this love for enemies therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect it seems the context here in which this is given is the context of loving your enemies. In other words, it gets us back to reminding us that God loves his enemies and therefore we're to be perfect as God is perfect in the sense of loving our enemies as well. We're to strive for that same perfect standard of loving our enemies just as God loves his enemies. As we said at the outset tonight, is that always an easy thing to do? Enemies don't make that easy many times. Enemies don't make that very easy on us. But how is it that we can, can come to be able to do it as challenging as it is? May I suggest the answer lies in going back to the first part of the Sermon on the Mount where God, through, where Christ rather deals with the attitudes that if applied and implemented in one's life will get you to where you can Love your enemies just as Jesus enjoins enjoins it upon us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not so hard for those who are truly poor in spirit to love their enemies. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When those attitudes are embedded in us as Christians, the command we have looked at to love our enemies in the latter part of this chapter will not be as challenging. It will not be as challenging. It will be much easier to carry out when we have truly become what God and Christ desire that we become by imbibing the word and applying it to our lives. That process cannot begin until one becomes a child of God. And so tonight as we close our thoughts on this beautiful Sermon on the Mount, in this portion of it, we ask, are you a child of God? Not if you have not believed in Christ as the Son of God, repented of your sins, confessed Jesus to be the Christ and have been buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16, 16. We plead with you to do that if you have not, that you may rise from that watery grave as one who has been poor in spirit and demonstrated that humility by coming and submitting to the plan that God through Christ has laid out for you and then continue to grow in those beautiful Christian graces including the ability, yes, to love even your enemies and to demonstrate before all mankind the love of God in your life. If you're not demonstrating that as one who has begun the Christian life and need to come home to your first love, need the prayers of the church, we plead with you to come. Let us pray with you and for you as we stand and sing.